All right, welcome back, everybody. This is episode 44 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Bomani. And second episode of the week, kind of rare, but I got my college buddy, my, my good friend, Clement Gibson, on the set. And we're going to talk about NBA basketball. The All-Star Weekend is upon us, so that means we can review the midseason play of NBA in general. But before we dive into all that, Clement, man, he's been a busy guy. Uh, past few weeks, graduated from Columbia, you know what I'm saying, on the bigger and better things move forward. Let's talk about that, how you feeling, how you been doing, how you been living, and what has, you know, post-school career been looking like lately for you? And appreciate you for having me, first and foremost. Uh, you know, just been busy, uh, like you said, uh, following the Columbia graduation, um, working in digital marketing now. Um, you know, still trying to find my way to the NBA and not as a player for those who don't know me. Hoop <laughs> dreams are over. Uh, but yeah, man, just been trying to, you know, make the best out of something and, you know, keeping my Jackson State roots strong. So I appreciate you coming on here and allowing me to come and teach you something. So for, for those who don't know, you know, uh, Cam and I be going at it in our group chat, the At The Whistle uh, group chat, was, which was a podcast we once had. And, you know, I'd be having to let him know, you know, teach him some of these things sometimes because he think he know, you know, uh, more than me at times. He's a smart brother, but, you know, sometimes you got to just let him know. But I appreciate you having me on, bro. And always a blessing to have you on. Yeah, like in the group chat. What you finna see right here, this is just the tip of the iceberg where we go in the group chat and be back and forth, not just with us two, but other members from the At The Whistle gang. Uh, really, my brothers for life, and uh, we talk about basketball amongst other things. So always, always some feisty debates in there. But um, before we dive in, you say you're trying to get deeper into the NBA landscape. So um, in what aspect are you trying to aim towards that realm in your postgraduate career? Yeah, uh, honestly, I, I did an internship with the um, Atlanta Hawks. Um, with the public relations and communications team. Uh, I got my degrees in communication. So I uh, would definitely like to like uh, work in a stratosphere where I'm working within communications or um, within uh, marketing. Those are the two areas I'd like to dive into. Um, I think I have a knack for both. So uh, anything within the NBA, that's why we, you know, keep ourselves versatile. So, you know, we can do public relations or communications or marketing, whatever the case may be, writing, you know, just love being around the game, love studying the game, and anything that brings me closer to it, I definitely love to do. Yeah, that's a big-time long-term girl there. And you represented, really, Jackson State, all the HBCUs, well down in Vegas, you know, covering the Atlanta Hawks. So that was a dope experience just to see you, you know, do that pretty well from afar. So, I mean, hey, man, sky the limit for you. I know bigger and better things down the line. Hey, man, I'm going to be rooming for you, even though we go back and forth with the hoops. Stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, I you know, it's, you it's to, all love. It's, it's all, all love. Like a, a wise man never argues with a fool. So if <laughs> if I didn't think you knew what you was talking about, I would definitely not <laughs> I would not be arguing with you. <laughs> that's that's very true, man. Even when I be arguing with you, I'll be like, bro, like, Clem, I, I know he be knowing what he talking yeah, about. The basketball, I said it, say that like yeah. Cam too smart <laughs> to be saying this right now. Cam, I need you. Come on now. You, you're the smart one. Come on. <laughs> for so, for so. And so we're going to dive right into the NBA topics right now. Midseason NBA review. This is what I'm going to call this episode. And we're really going to start with the midseason awards. MVP, rookie of the year, coach of the year, defensive player of the year, six man of the year. 
really the first one we're going to dive into is MVP. And this is a hard one to really define even at the midpoint because you have so many challengers from Joel Embiid to DeMar DeRozan to Ja Morant to Nikola Jokic to Giannis Antetokounmpo. And so um, I want to start off real Clem. Who is your MVP right now at the midseason mark in the NBA? Man, I got Joel, Troel, and B. I mean, the guy has been dominating, um, holding it down um, for the 76ers. You know, we had the whole Ben Simmons fiasco going on uh, throughout the entire um, first half of the year. And, you know, they're not number one or number two, but they're in the race for that with just Joel being that guy. And we know he's had a history of, being hurt. So him only missing 12 games up to this point uh, is definitely phenomenal. And then just the last month of basketball, I mean, if you would have told me last year or any year before that you'd be showing Joel Embiid post up fadeaways highlights in comparison to Kobe and Michael Jordan's, I would have, I would have been like, you're crazy. Like, well, that, that don't even make sense. But I found myself watching ESPN, seeing their clips side by side and being like, yo, this man's really moving like a shooting guard right now, like bringing the ball up, pushing the pace uh, for the Sixers. So that's been a joy to watch. Um, I, I definitely think he's been the number one, and it's fluctuated a uh, year, um, like I would say every month or so, starting with Curry, and then Jokic had a strong month as well. Um, Giannis, his resurgence. Uh, but I think Joel has been the front runner right now, at least right now. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how Harden impacts that. If if Harden, with his high usage rate, um, kind of takes away from Joel's ability to, you know, dominate uh, in the post and things like that. But I, I got Joel Troel right now. And man, we won for one because Embiid's my MVP so far as well. Uh, really, his performance. Uh, yeah, look at us agreeing. It might be common in this segment. Who knows? But his dominance last night against the Milwaukee Bucks really showcased how dominant he's been all year. He had a 42-piece, 14-21 shooting, 11-13 at the line. And throughout the season, 29 points per game, 11 boards, 4 rebounds, and almost 1.5 blocks a game. He's been the Philadelphia 76ers offense. And I've been saying this throughout the chat, really throughout the year online. The Sixers team reminds me a lot of those Orlando Magic squads when Dwight Howard was arguably the best big man in basketball. They played through him. Now, obviously, he's much more skilled offensively than Howard was, but they played through him. They have the shooters galore around them. And you're right. The big question is when Harden comes back into the fold, Will that dominance be sustainable for Embiid in the post? Probably not. And I think moving forward, he probably won't be at the top of the MVP ladder forever or for long. But at this point in the season, he's been phenomenal for a Sixers team that's top five in the East. And that's what is a lot of people's questions because we know Embiid's talented, but it's been about health. And when he's on the floor, it's been about consistency. For the most part, he's played 49 games. It's not all the games, but it's most of them. And when he's been on the floor, he's been consistent. He's been a phenomenal piece, to say the least, for the Sixers. And, you know, Moving on from there, I got a runner-up as well, and I want to see who your runner-up probably is with the MVP race so far. DeRozan is my close second because he's been on a crazy tear the last mm. eight games with um, point performances from 31 to 45 to 38 to 36 to 35 to 38 to 40 and 38. He's been phenomenal for the Bulls, shooting 51% from the field, 34% from three, 87% from the line. This is like Toronto DeRozan in his prime. This is really what he's been performing like for the Bulls. And I've had the opportunity to see the Bulls twice live. 
And DeRozan's pace, his ability to score on all aspects of the floor has been phenomenal. And it's the main reason why the Bulls are tied for the one seed in the East. I mean, him and Levine have taken turns of being dominant scorers, but I think his precision, I think, as a scorer from all avenues of the court has been phenomenal. And then the assists. He's averaging five assists a game. And that's been a big thing about DeRozan. I thought he rediscovered himself in San Antonio and further defined himself as a complete player under Popovich. And that's kind of carrying over with the Bulls as well. So he's like my close second in a tight-knit MVP race. Yeah. Um, I love DeMar, but look, this got to go to Jokic, man. Like, what this guy is doing, we're talking 52 games. Is, I believe he's played every single game this season so far. Um, another, it's kind of like he's Joel of the, the West, like missing his second and third best player. Um, Jamal Murray, who's been out since last year with the torn ACL, and then Michael uh, Porter Jr., who's had back issues uh, since the early part of the season. But this man is averaging 26, damn near 14 rebounds a game, eight assists, 57% from the field, almost shooting 40% from three. And then his PR, I'm not a huge PR guy, but he's, what, 32.6. He's almost surpassing Giannis with the highest PER in NBA history, all right? So, I mean, you got to give it up to Jokic. And even with all of this, everything that's been going on with them, they're still right there in the standings. Like, they're number six. And that's only with Luka just now, you know, getting into the swing of things and passing them up. Not too long ago, they were five. So, I mean, you just got to give it up to them. Like, when you have – when you're down – two of your top three players and you're still finding a way to uh, stay in that top six in the conference and do everything that he's doing. I, I got to give it up to him. You know, DeMar's handling everything uh, on the East as well, but I mean, it's for, for me, it's just like, it's like guys can have great seasons, but when I'm, when it's winning time, that's what I always come down to. It's like, do I like, am I choosing this guy over the other candidates? And I just think for DeMar, like, he he just hasn't shown up and proven that in, like, the biggest moment. So I don't know if I can choose him. Like, but, you know, he's having a great year. I, I have him, like, number five on my list. I understand the Jokic perspective. I think what hurts him. And maybe you could change the narrative. Who knows? In the second half of the year. They're the sixth seed. And unless he averages a triple-double, which is possible and would be crazy from a big man because we've seen Westbrook average a triple-double at the guard spot. We thought that was, you know, astronomical. It would be, I think, even more astronomical for Jokic to do the same because we know a big can score double digits with points and get double-digit rebounds. But the assist acumen is next level. They're the sixth seed out West, and I've seen Denver play a lot. It's really Jokic or bust, so when he's got it going, they're a tough out, but when he's off, his supporting cast around him has struggled to pick him up and elevate the team to victory. So it's really going to come down to wins in that aspect. And I feel like out West as well, you know, John Moran is a lurking beast as well because Memphis is literally two and a half games away from the two seed. And if Memphis finishes higher than Denver and we look at these stats side by side and see what Jaws doing as well, because currently as we're in the all-star break, Jaws putting up phenomenal numbers, 26 points per game, almost seven assists, six boards, one points, two steals. Like we had a conversation in the chat, you had job, you know, most improved, which says a lot about what he used to be last year to this year. So like you said, Jokic is having a year where 
his season currently is better than his MVP season. The problem is everybody else has also elevated their play, especially within his own conference. So uh, I honestly think it's going to come down to Moran and be DeRozan and Giannis in the second half of the season. And I think Moran probably has a dark horse chance because if Memphis finishes in the top two, which is a strong possibility, I think you got to give it to him considering the fact that he's improved from last year to this year and no one expected Memphis to be a top two seed in the West. I think we all expected Memphis to be a playoff team, maybe mm-hmm. the bottom half of the West. But if they're two and he's the leading you know, initiator of all that, I think he has a strong chance to win it as well. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. I think Ja is uh, making a strong case for himself. The, the biggest argument against him though is his team has a positive record not even a positive record but a a really good record without him um and for me I you know that that says a lot like when we're talking about most valuable player I know there's so many different ways to break down what this award means but you know it for me it questions like how valuable are you if your team is still successful and winning at a high clip without you um so and then, you know, there's some narrative that plays in there as well um, with him being so young and this not being something that's um, solidified because, you know, this has been his first year really playing at this level um, that might work against him because they're like, OK, well, you know, like a Julius Randle, a guy who we've seen had a spectacular year and then the next year slumps down. So. Um, I think I think he's going to finish in the top five just because he's so electrifying and he is putting up the numbers um, to be in that category. However, uh, for the Nuggets, Jamal Murray is supposed to be returning um, as well as Michael Porter Jr. in April. Um, Bones Highland has, has uh, played very impressive for them. So um, I think once they get their group together, it's not a team that has not played together before. So with Aaron Gordon, you know, being a solid piece all year, Jokic being the driving force, improvements from Bones Highland, um, as well as Jamal Murray and uh, Michael Porter Jr. coming back, those guys aren't going to have to rush into playing a big role because Jokic and Aaron Gordon has already, you know, anchored that that team. So they'll be able to come back and transition in right away. Um, and then, you know, really just take their time and not feel rushed. And I think that's going to pay dividends as they, you know, work their way through the first round of the playoffs. And then by the second round, I think they'll be ready to uh, contribute and help Jokic, you know, take that next step. Yeah, them coming back is huge. It's tricky, but huge because now I think it makes that battle to not be third even bigger because if you're a third senior, you're playing a Denver team that's getting healthy with Porter Jr., and uh, Jamal Murray coming back together. That's going to be a tough task indeed. Rookie of the Year yeah, only award. Two, only two teams are safe in the West. Only two. Yeah, only two, for sure. For sure, indeed. Now, with the Rookie of the Year uh, awards midseason, I think this is pretty self-explanatory. Um, who do you have being the Rookie of the Year at the midseason point in the NBA? It's funny you say self-explanatory because I feel like you're going to say somebody different than me. Um but I got Evan Mobley, man. I, you know, I, I've really been, I've been trying not to get ahead of myself. I know you say I like to live in the past, but like I say, I like to look at the patterns from the past to make predictions for the future. And look, this this might be a hot take, but I think I really think Evan Mobley, two things. One could be like. I think it's his floor is Chris Bosch and his ceiling is like a Tim Duncan. 
I think he can be the next generation's like Tim Duncan. This era is Tim Duncan. Um, just his defensive uh, prowess, like same thing. He's kind of like a reserve guy, doesn't say much, but just goes out and balls. And I mean, the guy has been like really holding it down and, and, and made a big difference in why Cleveland is where they are right now in the Eastern Conference. Um, and uh, once again, a, a semi-hot take, I just think that could we make this argument, Cam? Let's go there. Can we make this argument? Let's say Evan Mobley wins a little far-fetched, but let's say Evan Mobley has a Tim Duncan-ish career, right? And he wins, let's say, three finals MVPs, maybe wins four or five rings. Can we be talking about him as, like, the greatest Cleveland Cavalier ever? Not, not, not the greatest Cav to ever wear a jersey but the greatest Cleveland Cavalier ever, like as far as like what he did for the, for the organization, because, you know, we know obviously LeBron James, um, but if he wins more rings than LeBron in Cleveland, breaks his scoring records, break the rebounding records and all those, you know, act good accolades and stuff like that. I think this is a guy, this is a generational talent that we're going to be talking about for the next 15 years. Like that, that's, that's, that's why he's my rookie of the year. Yeah. I have the same sentiments as well. Um, he's been rookie of the year really all season. And there were five guys well, four guys. I was really high on coming out of that class. I was high on Cade. I was high on Mobley. I was high on Kaminga and I was high on Duarte and they've all played particularly well. Now, granted Duarte and Kaminga lately have gotten more enhancements to showcase their potential. But when I saw Mobley's tape, I was like, bro, this is Anthony Davis. And I think his ceiling is even higher than that because I feel like he's more durable. I feel like he's much more willing to be a five and bang against guys and defend at the rim. And his back to the basket game is way far ahead than AD's was at this point of his young career. He's the truth. And like you stated before, if he does gain those accolades, I think we can have that conversation because you're right. That's his ceiling. And, you know, coming out, I, I said, you know, Cade was the most NBA ready because of what he provided but I thought Mobley had the highest ceiling because you saw the jump shot ability. You saw the run protection ability. You saw the fluidity for somebody that size at seven feet. And he's really putting it all together. But the thing that stood out the most is how seamless him and Allen are side by side. It reminds yeah. me a lot of a young David Robinson. Well, not David Robinson was a young at then, but really David Robinson, Tim Duncan, or to go even farther than that, Ralph Sampson and Akeem Olajuwon. Now, I'm not saying Mobley. David yeah. Robinson uh, Tim? and Tim Duncan, exactly. Now, I'm not saying, you know, Mobley's Olajuwon or Duncan yet, but he has those potentials. And I've heard Garnett, I've heard AD, Bosch is a great ceiling for him. He really came and changed the culture for the Cavs. Um, yeah. Obviously, we saw what Allen was able to do on his lonesome with Garland when he came from the Nets last year. But once Mobley comes into the table in the front court, they're a tough, tough out because they play together well offensively because Allen can pass, Mobley can pass. They both pass off each other. They both can somewhat stretch the floor. I know Mobley's struggling from three. And then on the defensive side, you could switch everything because they have the foot speed to guard other guards. I mean, he's averaging 15 a game, um, 2.66, 1.6 blocks. The boards are there. He's shooting 50% from the field, 53% from two-point range. He's been phenomenal all season and Cleveland lucked up because I thought Houston fell into the hype you know Houston took Jalen Green I, I still think Jalen Green's ceiling is like Vince Carter but when you have a chance to take a generation talent like Mobley you can't pass that up 
And that's what Houston should have did. They didn't. Cleveland looked up and got the leftovers. And here we are. They're a playoff team because of the emergence of Darius Garland and the inclusion of Evan Mobley. It's that simple. And that's why he's rookie of the year for me. Man, shout out to uh, Coach Bickerstaff for experimenting with that big lineup with Laurie marking in at three and then playing the, those two bigs in the post. He's bringing it back to the 90s. And I appreciate watching them. I really want to see where they're going to go. I think they'll be um, – they're going to they're gonna beat the hell out of somebody. I don't think they're going to win uh, – get out the first round, but I think they're going to they're gonna really test some, someone and take them to seven games. They are, man. I mean, they're going to be a tough out. And I wouldn't be shocked if they won a series. They're that good. I think moving forward for the Cavs, they're just a wing away. Um, you have the Twin Towers in the middle. You got your point guard in Garland. And Okoro has shown flashes at times of being a quality defender and a sometimes shooting three guy on the wing. But I think they just need a wing that can kind of – they can lean on to get some scoring on the perimeter. They bring in Levert in to do that potentially. My problem with Levert is while he's improved as a scorer in the league, he's still a little bit out of control. He's still a little ball dominant, and he's still a little tunnel vision. So if they can get a guy on the wing that's like a complete S player, like a it's crazy, like a Brandon Ingram, what Brandon Ingram is right now, that team would just go to the roof. Now, my runner-up for rookie of the year is Scotty Barnes. And um, I, I feel like early on in the season, he will, it was him and Mobley were neck and neck. And then what really hurt Barnes in comparison to Mobley was Barnes' touches started to diminish as Siakam got back and got into the groove and as Gary Chen Jr. started to get more touches and shots beyond the arc. How, what have you seen from Scotty Barnes so far that you've liked? And do you have him as your runner-up so far at the rookie of the year or maybe somebody else? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it's funny you say that because you you rode for K so hard earlier on in the season. I thought I was uh... – I thought that would be your your, your number one pick um, just because, you know, he got off to a slow start, but he did go on a stretch um, and has been playing a lot better as of late, especially since uh, Jeremy Grant went down and uh, Jeremy uh, Grant's back now. But I think he showed um, that he can play at this level and that he can – he's not there yet, but he you can see flashes of him being a number one leading a team with his playmaking and he's even had some really good defensive plays which I didn't know he was um that level of a defender um but Scotty Barnes um like yourself I thought earlier on like the first 15 games or so him and uh, Mobley were neck and neck um he was another guy who I was really surprised by as well um I didn't think he could average like even double figures not because he wasn't talented but just because I didn't know he had the the drive to score um and then like being able to plug him in you know at six seven six eight or six nine i don't know how tall he is um but he can play the perimeter he can play you know that that uh stretch four position you know he's long he's athletic he can run the floor he's a smart basketball player so uh, plugging him in there has been like a seamless transition for toronto like you can play him uh, next to siakam um, so I, I have him third right now behind Cade, just because I've seen Cade like take over a game. And, um, I think Barnes has shown that he can be a starting caliber player and maybe even like, I know it's early, but I like to make predictions. So like, I can see him being like a third best player on a team. Whereas right now I can see Cade being like a second or first, and I can see Evan Mobley being a first. 
Yeah, all those things are valid. I think what sold me on Scotty Barnes was his first summer league game. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I think Scotty Barnes is probably, this is a sidebar, maybe a further indictment on Florida State as a basketball program because Jonathan Isaac and Barnes, while they were there, I felt like we're a little bit underutilized. Then they come into the NBA more wide open floor spacing game where they're able to utilize their athleticism and versatility as ball handlers. And you see their offensive upside materialize. But I think Scotty Barnes' ceiling, when he when he got drafted, a lot of people were saying he was going to be the next Draymond. It reminds me a lot of Iguodala. Now, he's a taller, longer Iguodala, but he's Iguodala in the sense of Swiss Army knife on the ball. He could defend all five positions. He's a guy who uses athleticism to score and be effective around the basket. And like you said, I had questions, too, because he couldn't shoot really well. He wasn't super aggressive offensively off the bounce in college. But when you look at the tape now and you look at his stats, he's averaging 14 a game, seven boards, three assists, and a steal. And he's shooting 47% from the field on 12 shots, but the big kicker is 31% from three. The big knock that Toronto fans have about Barnes' usage on the team is they feel like he's underutilized. And I understand that now because you got to ride your championship dogs, which is Van Vliet, the all-star, Siakam, the all-NBA former talent, and Gary Trent Jr. has come on as well. But I think eventually – if Scotty Barnes is able to elevate his game into a, this is crazy, like a Giannis rise, it opens it up to where right now his ceiling, like we both agree. I, I don't know if he can be honest, but right now we agree his ceiling is, he's a third, he's a starter, but he's probably a third wheel. But if he can continue adding aspects to his game and be a fringe star caliber player, the sky's the limit for the Raptors. And man, kudos to Masai Ujiri, man. Bro, dude always one step ahead ever since the Kawhi trade to now. He's got Toronto trekking on with what everybody thought in a year past they were over. And, I, you know, I don't think Toronto's going to be um, world beaters in the playoffs. I think if they when they do make the playoffs, they'll give somebody a tough out. But they're building towards something in the future. And it's because taking an investment on Scotty Barnes, when a lot of people had penciled in them taking Jalen Suggs and it's paid off so far. Now, before I pivot to defensive player of the year, one more thing about Kate. I like Kate a lot, but I got to stay consistent with my criteria. They're not winning enough for oh, me to really put K. Who is this <laughs> guy? Who is this guy? Who is they're, this guy? <laughs> they're, they're not winning enough for me to put him in the top two. And I like Kate a lot. And I, I knew K, it was just a matter of time him getting his self together in the league because he came off the injury. Then when he came back, kind of had to include himself in a team where, like you said, Jeremy Grant was the guy. But now he's found his way. And I think the sky's the limit from the moving forward. I think what the Pistons need to figure out with moving forward is do they want to give the keys to Cade to be their lead guard? And I think they do because they wanted to see what Killian Hayes was like opposite Cade because Killian Hayes was their primary guard in a couple drafts prior. He's not it. And so the best thing that happened for Detroit is you develop Cade, you develop Sadiq Bey, you develop Isaiah Stewart, and now you have a chance to get a lottery pick once again where you might be picking number one for a second year in a row. And then now you can get a Chet Holgram uh, Pablo Ventura from Duke. And now Detroit's rebuild, it looks a lot more. Con- 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 Jabari Smith. Or Jabari Smith. It looks a lot more cohesive down the line than it would in years past. Um, defensive player of the year. Now, this is a little tricky, I think, in my opinion. But who do you have as the midseason DPOTY this season? Now, we both say the same thing. I'm going to think something a little off because – I ain't never heard us agree three times in a row, but um, this this award it's it's changed a lot. I would say um, 
earlier on it was like Draymond and and Rudy Gobert with like the, the two front runners in that house Turner was having a great a year blocking the ball. And that's always like a huge component when choosing uh, this award. Uh, recently I saw NBA.com. They had uh, Miles Bridges, um, not Miles, um, Mikhail, sorry, uh, was on the list. And I thought that was pretty surprising uh, because a lot of great on-ball players don't usually get the awards because they don't have the stats because they're too busy playing good on-ball defense. Um, but I thought, I, I thought it was great to see him in there, but I would, I would say Giannis is my number one pick. Um, he had some really great defensive plays in the finals last year. And I think he's been doing the same thing all year. Like, uh, what was the primetime game they had recently? He had like, oh, just when they played the Lakers, like, I mean, he's blocking shots in the paint. Um, on what Russell Westbrook, LeBron's coming, driving in, he's blocking stuff off the glass. He blocked Anthony Davis on the jump shot. Like he may not be having like a sexy defensive player of the year, uh, uh, candidacy, but when you look at his impact on defense, especially with Brooke Lopez being out all year and then Mike, uh, Bobby Portis, who, you know, is a spark plug and has been, you know, a better three point shooter and a stretch four, if you will, for the Milwaukee Bucks this year. They don't really have a defensive presence outside of Brooke Lopez on the inside. And Giannis has been holding that down all year. Um, and they've been a good defensive team with him, you know, holding it down. So um, I would say he's the defensive player of the year for me. Bro, like we three for three, brother. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. What a day. What a day. I know <laughs> it's odd, bro. That's I never. Crazy. And that's really crazy. But I got Giannis as well. And honestly, Giannis should have two defensive player of the years right now. But, you know, Gobert took one of them from him. But the big thing is he's averaging a steal per game and almost 1.5 blocks a game. He's ninth in defensive win shares at 2.7 to go with his 29, 11 and six. I feel like his on ball defense has improved this year by leaps and bounds. In the past, he was an elite help side defender, but it used to be when you had him on an ISO one-on-one away from the perimeter, well, away from the lane and on the perimeter. If you were a lethal scorer with a crafty handle and a go-to move, you got him. Those things have changed. He's he's more of a better defender on the perimeter than he has been in years past, but he's really been their defense for them. In a year where Lopez hasn't played consistently all season, he's been their five. He's been there four. He's been there three. He's played all aspects of the front court, and he's done it really well. And I think if he doesn't win MVP, he's going to get defensive player of the year. I think he's a lock for one of those two awards. And I think it continues because unlike the guy I have a runner up, Rudy Gobert, Giannis can guard stretch bigs like he can. He's athletic enough. And I think that hurts Gobert a lot. And we're going to talk about Gobert a little bit because you know, the conversation on Gobert is endless, but a big one I want to ask you is something down the line. But like I said with Giannis, he can guard stretch bigs. And so now with the athleticism that he has, he can protect the rim. He can guard a big that can extend the range and on a switch or so he can hang at your point guard for a couple of possessions. That's something that's undeniable. And he's been a huge part of this Milwaukee Bucks success defensively. Now, Gobert is my runner up. He's actually six in defensive win shares. Um, he's averaging... 15 points, 14 boards, 2.3 blocks a game. But the problem with Gobert has been throughout his Utah Jazz standard is he's you can play him off the floor if you have a stretch big 
that can get him away from the lane or a guard that's athletic enough to blow by him on a face-up opportunity that's also away from the lane and they can attack his blind spot. Exactly. Terrence Mann, Russell Westbrook, list goes on and on. Now, what Gobert has proven is without him, Utah's a horrible defensive team. With him there, they're top 10. So he's got that going for him. Why do you still feel like Gobert's misunderstood or the rhetoric throughout the media and throughout social media, all aspects of media, you name it? Is it accurate? Is it he's overrated as a defender or he's underrated to this point? I don't think he's overrated as a defender. I think he's right where he should be as a defender. I just think he's like, he's like um, an all or nothing. Like if you're looking at in this, this day and age of basketball with, you know, positionless, if you will, he doesn't fit the mold as a defensive player because he can only dominate around the basket. Um, But he's the best at doing it around the basket. So I think the criticism is fair because like a Giannis, like a um, Draymond Green, he can only dominate one side on defense, you know, and that's inside the paint around the basket. Um, So I think the criticism is fair. However, you cannot deny that the man is like a one-man defensive wrecking crew. And regardless if you like him or not, um, you cannot deny size. You cannot deny, like you said, he's six in win, uh, defensive win shares. Um, you know, I just I just don't think he needs to be with Donovan Mitchell. I think he would be great on a, on a team like a – not per se be on the Brooklyn Nets, but like a team that has two primary scores already – like a Minnesota Timberwolves or like a Brooklyn Nets or like, um, um, shoot, I don't know. Like, but he, if his sole purpose is to just play defense and rebound, he will be a star. Like Ben Wallace, if you put Ben Wallace on this Utah Jazz team and he's supposed to be the second best player, which a lot of people think that means like you should be the second scorer as well, which is fair because I'm one of those people. Um, <laughs> I think that he would be looked at in a much different light if he played with the Chauncey Billups, a Tayshaun Prince, a Rip Hamilton, where his job was just to defend the paint. Um, but I think Utah really needs a lot out of him. Um, and it's easy to play him off the court in today's NBA because he can't move his feet, you know, but once he gets you in that paint around the basket, he's going to, you know, dominate things. So, uh, I just think he needs to get out of Utah. That's the, I think that's that's really the the main thing. You hit it on a nail with Gobert. He's a traditional rim protector. And yeah. in football terms, it's kind of like a traditional strong safety that'll take your head off over the middle of the field and enforcer, but they can't cover for anything. And so when isolated and pass passing game concepts, they're uh basically their element of impact degrades immensely. And that's Gobert. Now, to go Bears defense, I don't think offensively, he's averaging 15 a game, which is crazy. That's like a career high for this guy because he's not known as a guy to average 15 plus points a game. I don't think his offensive repertoire is used enough because they don't utilize him consistently in the pick and roll. And that's largely because Conley's in and out the lineup and Donovan Mitchell doesn't want to pass or I don't think he's a good passer at all. I'm going to just be real. Now, <laughs> I mean, Gobert, bro, Gobert is like, 
the man's kind of trash in the paint. Like, keep it a buck. Like, he's not like give him the ball and tell him to create a shot. He he's not that guy. That's why I think like I think he would be really good with Luca. Like having a guy like Luca. Luca Luca doesn't really want to pass like for you to create. He wants to pass for you to finish. So I think he'd be great with a guy like that. But you can't you can't lie. Like the man is not intimidating on offense and I think in the NBA people can say what they want but scoring is the most important statistic and if you're if you're if scoring is like your secondary um if it's like your your secondary strength I think for a lot of people they look at you differently you know like I mean obviously we see the criticism Giannis got and he was he like scoring is obviously his his best thing, but he doesn't have a bag. So like Rudy Gobert, same way. Not only does he not have a bag, he doesn't even have like a cart or anything to like nothing. Like he doesn't have anything. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's like even sometimes when he gets good opportunities to catch a finish, he like he's not always the best at catching the ball. So it's like he's so like mediocre offensively that. It's just hard to like his his dominance on defense just balances out and makes him like above average, if you will. But yeah, I just I just think expectations shape a lot of who people are and how we define them. And in his role as the second best player as an all-star, he's I don't think he lives up to the hype. But if you put him as like a third guy, like who's just like a defensive stopper, he would shine. Yeah, a few things on that sentiment. Uh, going to Dallas would be like going to the Western version of the Texas version of Utah, like the same position. Like, obviously, Luke is a better passer and playmaker than Donovan, but I feel like Gobert's offensive potential would be even more subjugated because Luca don't like passing unless he has to. He's a score first guy. Now, but Luca, with, Luca would set him up in the pick and roll. At least he would like how James Harden makes all his big men and Chris Paul make all his big men, big men look good. I think Luca would could do that for him. That I can agree with, and that's that's really what I'm saying about Gobert and Utah. Like Donovan Mitchell out of the pick and roll is not very good at passing, and I think that was exposed against the yeah. Clippers last year in the playoffs because they rarely ran pick and roll concepts in Game Six. And game five, I don't, did Mike Conley play game six? I'm not sure, but the games where Conley didn't play, they rarely ran pick and roll concepts because Quinn Snyder just didn't trust Mitchell to make the right basketball decision and feed Gobert near the basket. And you're right, he don't have a bag and he fumbles the ball out. But if you put it up high enough for a seven-two guy, he's gonna finish at the rim nine times out of ten. But on his defensive side, I agree. He's he's I feel like he's underrated a little bit because I think people ignore the fact that he's still elite at protecting the rim. It's just that. When he goes against an AD, when he goes against a Jokic, when he goes against an Embiid, he's rendered useless because he doesn't have the foot speed. Um, he doesn't have the discipline to hang with them beyond the basket. And again, what you said as well, him being the second best player is, in my opinion, a recipe for disaster because he doesn't have the offensive repertoire to be a second best player, but he'd be a solid third option. And Brooklyn's perfect. Minnesota's ideal because the more I see Minnesota play, the more I realize Cat just refuses to be a traditional five. He wants to be a stretch big the rest of his career. So Gobert would fit perfectly there. Um, him as a third option around guys that can score. Him around another front court player that can score to take the pressure off of him for having to be an offensive weapon would help him immensely. But I think for as long as he 
is seven foot one and is still in the league. He's always going to be a competitor for the defensive player of the year award for sure. Uh, six man of the year. Um, who you got on that award? Because it's it's close all over. But who do you have winning that award this season? Um, I got Tyler Hero. Um, I think this has been one of the awards that I don't think is too competitive this year. And I mean, the guy's averaging what like twenty points a game off the bench. Um, I don't know if he's gonna qualify because he has started a, a large amount of games, but um yeah I got Tyler Hero for that for just the fact that he's coming off the bench scoring uh big numbers and he's probably one of the best bench players in the entire NBA if not the best yeah and 36 games off the bench for Hero he's averaging 19 a game basically 20 this is 19.9 37 percent from three he's averaging four assists as well almost five rebounds he's my sixth man of the year as well and he's starting to put he's starting to somewhat live up to the Devin Booker expectation somewhat. I don't think he'll ever be Devin Booker, to be honest, but he looks like he's going to be a microwave as score of any Johnson, somebody that can come in and fill it up. And Miami depends a lot on him and Robinson to make their offense reach elite levels, because when they're not hitting shots, you're really relying on a slasher and Jimmy Butler, a offensively capped Bam Adebayo, and Kyle Lowry still has a burner here or there, but he's not what Kyle Lowry used to be in his earlier years in Toronto, a shooing all-star starter in the East. So when him and Duncan are clicking hero, that is, they're a tough out in the East, and he's been playing phenomenal this year. Now, I know he's been out lately due to some injuries, but he's been my sixth man of the year as well. And I think the close second is the guy that won it last year, Jordan Clarkson, 15 a game as well. But I think it's been hero, and honestly, hero had – had a chance, in my opinion, to win six men and most improved. He was playing at that such of an elite clip. But we're going to get to that award before we round out the whole segment with Coach of the Year. Who's your most improved? This might be the one where we ain't we ain't side by side. This might be the one. But who's your most I'm about improved? I was about to say, because we, we didn't have this conversation before. And I do not agree with Tyler Hero as the most improved player because he was already averaging like 20 points a game. Like, I think it was like 15, but still like – he was having big scoring games and like, if anything, like he's getting back to like, if there was like a comeback player of the year type thing, like that would be more accurate describing his year more so than most improved because he's already been at this level. He just had a year where he regressed so badly that he's him coming back to where he was his rookie season is seen as a big improvement but I don't think he's most improved. I do think you made a great point because at first I was going with um, John Morant. Um, and then we looked back at the, the former winners to see who, you know, where they were selected in the draft and, and you know, comparing the different things that, that add up to get the award. So um, I don't think John Morant will get it because of his draft position. And I, but I think the person who I, I'm going to choose is someone who was drafted high, but still is having like a very improved season. Like maybe not so much like a huge jump in his numbers, but the thing that I looked at is like first time all-star, you know, kind of broke into this 20 point per game because that's kind of like, a, that's kind of like the, the number that like solidifies you as like a, a, a pretty good score in the NBA and then like 
his team excelling, and that was Darius Garland. Um, he was the fourth pick, uh, but you know he's he's improved four points per game. His rebounding has gone up uh, almost a whole um, um, from two point five to three point three. His assists has gone up from five point eight to eight. Uh, field goal percent has gone up. Uh, three point percent is about the same. Free throw percentage is going up. He's in the 90, 90% range now. So he's almost getting to that 50, 40, 90 type of uh, um, season, which is like elite level of scoring and just efficiency. Uh, I know he was drafted fourth, but made his first all-star team. His team is third in the uh, East. And, you know, we talked about Evan Mobley, you know, his defensive um, impact on the team. But Darius Garland has been there. I mean, you can argue like their only real offensive threat night in and night out and has led them to that third uh, spot in the East. So I would put him number one, but I think Miles Bridges is a close second. I mean, obviously his numbers jump off the page when you look at improvements, just going from um, 12 points a game to 20, uh, seven, seven rebounds now, more assists. Uh, shooting numbers are about the same, but um, his team is in pretty much the same position they were before, and he didn't make an All Star this year. So uh, he fits he fits it from a from a lottery draft pick perspective. When you're looking at guys like Giannis and and uh, Siakam and Paul George who were drafted in that lottery area that previously won Most Improved, but I think Darius Garland deserves it the most. But I wouldn't be mad if Miles Bridges won it. Yeah, the Garland one's a good one. I think, honestly, that might be the most realistic one out of the ones I have. I had Bridges. I have Miles Bridges for sure um, because he has career highs in points, rebounds, assists, and even steals. He's averaging a steal per game. But like you said, um, his three-point shooting has kind of went down a little bit, but his shooting from the field hasn't really changed. All that's changed is he's getting more shot opportunities. And while he probably could win most improved, but then again, he may not because of where the Hornets are situated. They haven't really improved with his improved play. They've kind of stayed the same. Um, I think what might hurt Bridges, and this was the conversation we had in the chat, they don't play through him like uh, Cavs play through Garland in the backcourt because Garland initiates the offense for the bigs. Um, they play through Rozier and Ball, and that may be a reason why they're a few games under 500 and have been on this losing streak because I like Melo a ton. I think Melo has all NBA potential. But right now, at times, he is a little bit passive and he defers a lot to Rozier, who's very sporadic and inconsistent um, when he does play. So Bridges kind of gets the leftover benefits of what his guards kick out to him. And what's helped him a lot is Gordon Hayward's been out. And since Hayward's been out, he stepped in to really that third scoring role. But he's having career eyes all over. And that was a big thing for Bridges coming out of Michigan State. My fear was he was a tweener who was athletic as heck but he didn't have a bag and he wasn't a consistent shooter. He's improved his bag a little bit. He's become a more consistent shooter. And if my opinion, if he can become a athletic version of Pascal Siakam, that allows that Hornet squad, that nucleus of tweeners and um, combination of ragtag guys to do a little bit of everything. That'll take that team to the top. And I don't think he'll get there yet, but if he slowly, but surely continues to develop his game, he'll be there as well. Uh, Desmond Bain and Gary Trent Jr. are like close second and thirds. Bain's uh, turn is crazy, which is why I have Memphis's coach winning coach of the year. We're going to get to that later. 
Bain went from averaging single digits to almost 18 a game. And when Ja was out, they really leaned on Bain to be their score. And he produced from a 3 and D perspective. He was a highly touted 3 and D guy coming out of TCU. And that has translated exponentially at the pro level. And then I got Gary Trent Jr. His tear has been crazy the past month. He's averaging almost 19 a game. He's averaging also almost two steals a game. He's shooting 46% from two-point range, almost 40% from three on eight three-pointers a game. How he played in the bubble is what he's playing now with Toronto consistently. He's kind of nailed down their backcourt where he's a guy that you can lean on for offensive production beside Fred Van Vliet. So, like, a lot of these awards, most approved can go either way. It really will come down to how these teams finish strong and how these players finish strong to end the year. Um, Coach of the year. Um, I kind of give away who my coach of the year is, and I'll explain why. But who do you have as coach of the year at the midway point of the season? I have uh, Coach Monty Williams, man. Look, I think last year he got robbed of the award. Um, and we see now with Tibbs pretty much solidifying his way out of uh, New York. Um, coach Monty has really changed the entire culture of the Phoenix Suns. Now, it may not be the popular belief, but I think that Phoenix was headed for this type of success at some point with Monty at the helm. And I think it started in the bubble before CP3 got there. Now, obviously, CP3 helped excel that um, in a faster pace um, so they didn't have to wait a year or two. Like, I think they could have been uh, like a Memphis Grizzlies this year, like, you know, after last year being like maybe a six or seven seed, this year being like a team that goes into that, you know, top four, top three kind of category. Um, and I think it's because of Monty Williams. I think he's instilled a culture and, you know, has really empowered uh, DeAndre Jordan and Chris Paul and um, – and Devin Booker, and even Mikael Bridges, like, he's really helped lead them. And then, like, this year, the way they're blowing out not only the Western Conference, but the entire league, he, like, Steve Kerr won all these uh, Coach of the Year awards because of their record. So, like, I don't see why Monty shouldn't do the same, especially with uh, Chris Paul or Devin Booker not being, you know, MVP candidates, and we know why, but – Still, like you got, you got to recognize somebody on this team after the the year that they're having, and Monty Williams deserves it the most. You know, I understood why Tibbs got it last season because no one expected the Knicks to do anything. They missed out on KD, they missed out on Kyrie, they missed out on Zion. Like they missed out on all of that, and they but didn't. That's why they give Randall the, the most improved. Like that was that was like the reasoning. I I agree. But I think what Dibs did that took that Knicks team to the next level was they got D-Rose at the deadline or before the deadline. And they were always locked in as a defensive unit to where D-Rose's inclusion and their defensive identity enhanced by catch just buying into what Tibbs was selling, allowed them to win 48 games. Let's be real. No one expected that team to win 48 games. Now, we all ex- now on the flip side, we expected the Suns to be a playoff team. A two-seat, no. But I think we all expected Phoenix with Chris Paul to be at least four or five. They surpassed that by a couple of seeds, but no one expected Knicks to kind of be where they were last season. So I get giving it to Tibbs, which is why I think Monty won't get it again, because I don't think anybody expected the Memphis Grizzlies to be top three in the West, especially when Ja went out with that injury early on in the season. Look at these numbers. They're third in the West at 41 and 19. 
Now, this is the kicker. Morant, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks each have career highs in points per game this season. Morant's averaging 27. Bain's averaging 18. Dylan Brooks is 18.4. Jaron Jackson has transferred properly at the power four spot as a rebounder. Um, six point up a game as a scorer, 16.7. And as a rim protector, Jaron Jackson's out here blocking 2.2 shots a game. And the team is tied for first in the league in scoring. They're top five in offensive rating. They're top 10 in defensive rating. The turnaround for this team under Taylor Jenkins in year three is crazy. I think as long as Memphis, because we agree, no one's catching Phoenix. They're going to be the one seed out West. But if Memphis can surpass Golden State and lock in that two spot in a loaded West, well, not in a loaded Western Conference, but a very top heavy Western Conference, you got to give it to Taylor because no one expected Memphis to be this good. Again, it's kind of like um, Nick somewhat. We expected Memphis to be a playoff team, probably be five, six, maybe, but they're third best in the league. And they're led by a guy in Moran who could potentially win the MVP. But even when he's not on the floor, they don't miss a beat. Remember that crazy sequence during the year where for five straight games, they never trailed? That was without Moran. And they were beating some quality teams, Dallas and Miami. So Taylor Jenkins, in my opinion, is coach of the year right now. I mean, what he's done for this basketball team, because when we looked at what Memphis was last year when he lost five to the Utah Jazz, gentlemen sweep, we thought, all right, we know Moran's going to take that next step. But is the core around him going to be enough? We thought no, but overnight they look like they can be the core to build upon in the future because everyone improved on the squad and Jenkins is putting them in areas to succeed. I didn't even bring up Tyus Jones and what he's providing off the bench. So that's why I got to give it to Taylor Jenkins as coach of the year so far. I mean, if, if you're going by that, that rationale, then I feel like the Cavaliers and J.B. Bickerstaff should be like he should be the coach of the year because, I mean, we thought Memphis would make the playoffs, but we didn't think they would be, you know, the third seed. But the Cavs, I mean, we didn't think they were going to be in the playoffs. I, I thought they were probably going to be a lottery team, like maybe like just missed the play-in. So if you're going by that logic, then I think that the Cavs, should, like J.B. Bickerstaff should be the coach of the year or even uh, a Billy Donovan because – you know, obviously with the acquisition of, of DeMar DeRozan, they, you know, they were going to make a, a jump. But I don't think most people saw them. I, I thought they were going to be like the five seed. And that was like me being generous, you know. So um, his ability to make them a good defensive team and like J.B. Bickerstaff's um, sacrifice or risk, if you will, on playing big and playing Jared Allen and, and Mobley together because that was unconventional in today's game. Um, I think those two would would be better candidates by that logic. But I, I understand why you feel Taylor Jenkins would be the number one pick. Um, but I, I think Monty got to get it. The way they've just dominated, like, I just I, – I don't think you can overlook that. I don't think you can either, and you can never – uh eliminate the fact that voters will hook up guys that they feel like got shysted years prior so they might hook up Monty this year like look man you dominated for the past two years we'll give you a gift so you can't go wrong with Monty or Taylor Jenkins in my opinion I don't think you go wrong with Bickerstaff either it's just that Taylor's rap sheet this season is crazy like three guys improved career highs Jaron Jackson, who looked like a bust, because when he got the extension, we were like, he's cool and all, but he hasn't shown consistency. He's become a solid foreman on that squad as a rim protector 
and as a legitimate 15, 16 point per game score. And he's getting the best out of De'Anthony Melton. Zyra Williams, when he gets run, is productive. And Tyus Jones is looking like, at times, one of the top five backup point guards in the game. So you can't go wrong with either choice. I think a dark horse for all this is Ty Lue because this Clippers squad yeah. hasn't had Kawhi yeah. all year, hasn't had Paul George for half of the year, and they're a game under 500, a better record than the Lakers, who we're going to get to later. And without Paul George, yeah, the record is 16-19, and 19, but – they beat Boston twice, Philly once, Brooklyn on the road. They came back and beat Brooklyn. That's when they had KD and Harden. They beat Atlanta. They beat Denver. They beat Dallas. Eighth best defensive rating. Man, Ty Lue went from LeBron's mouthpiece to he's a legit NBA coach. And I think he yeah. let everybody know that last season. And he's legitimizing that this year because the Clippers have no business being yeah. a playing team at all. And they're no, the- I, I think I think Ty Lue is pound for pound he's the best coach in basketball right now but because of their record I don't think he'll be in the running for the award unless Kawhi and Paul George who may be coming back before the season and um, very unlikely but um, unless they can get like make a a last minute run and get like that fourth or fifth seed even um, I, I don't think he'll be in the running but in the last 10 years Seven out of the ten coaches who won rookie um, coach of the year have had a team who's won more than fifty-five games. Now, looking at Memphis in the standings, they have forty-one, and I think there's what about twenty-four games left, if that. So Memphis usually has an easier schedule down the stretch of the season because they're not a team that plays on national TV as much. Um, that's probably going to change next year because of the year Jaws having, but I don't, I don't think I can see Memphis winning. Well, I don't know, 24 games. They could probably go 14 to 10, but that 55, 55 game barrier is what it is. And, you know, Phoenix is right there. They're nine games away. And, you know, I can definitely see them doing it, but we'll see. We'll see. It'll it'll be a good race. It'll be a good race indeed. And we're going to move on and talk about the battle for the two seed out West. It's really going to come down to Memphis and Golden State because, let's be honest, Phoenix, they got the number one seed locked up out West. I think that's a foregone conclusion. So it really comes down to Memphis and Golden State on who gets the seed under that with the second spot. Currently, the Dubs are 42-17. and 17. Memphis is 41-19. and 19, But Golden State has lost three of their last four. They barely beat the struggling Lakers in between those L's that they took. Had a painful loss against the Nuggets last night where they were leading most of the game. And then Jokic and Monte Morris came back and bit him in the butt in the end. And I'm looking at your schedule at the All-Star Bay, Clem. It's brutal. You got Portland on the road, Dallas, Minnesota on the road, Dallas on the road, L.A. on the road, Denver on the road, then the Clippers. Golden State could go on a slide. And we don't know if Draymond's going to come back at the All-Star break, like exactly like as soon as the All-Star break ends. Is he going to be back? We're not sure. James Wiseman. I think you told us in the chat, got another surgery, so we don't know if he's going to be 100% and be ready. Golden State is a free fall imminent for them to where Memphis can usurp them and get that second spot. Yeah, um, I think they can, but I don't think it'll happen. Um, like I said, I think Memphis has the, the, the uh, schedule that's going to favor them. And they're still missing Dylan Brooks. I don't know when he's coming back, but um, I think I think they can definitely compete for that second spot. But I think ultimately Golden State is just so 
deep. And that's like, I know we talked about depth earlier with Darius and like depth is great for the regular season. Maybe not the best for the playoffs, but great for the regular season because, you know, it's a long season and people get hurt. You know, people get tired, yada, yada, yada. But I think so long as Steph is playing at the level he's playing at, Clay's continuing to turn into the clay that we know. Kaminga is having a good year. He's been um, showing flashes of brilliance. And if Draymond comes back and is healthy and can impact the defense the way we know he can, I mean, I don't even want to talk about Wiseman. I don't, I don't know where the hell he's at. I don't know when he's coming back. I don't know if he's coming back. I feel like they got a Ben Simmons thing going on with him too where he's like mentally just not – in the right place but um i hope you know they can figure that out but even if they don't they still have enough depth to where they'll be fine if if um draymond comes back like that's that's the main thing draymond comes back i think golden state has a better chance of competing with phoenix for that number one seed because i think chris paul always has a point in the year where he gets hurt um so i can see that happening um but yeah i I don't. I, I think. That, I think Golden State's gonna get the second seed. I don't. I don't think they're gonna get the second seed. First of all, the schedule is brutal. Second of all, Memphis' schedule is a little bit more favorable to them. You've referred to that a couple of times, but uh, all right, bro, just just peep that. But um, what it really comes down to, in my opinion, is I think this team's maxed maxed out offensively i think what they provide is they're a three-point shooting team that plays solid defense which is fine but they don't have the offensive explosion that they used to in years past when clay was 100 percent when he had kd when you had a prime curry and even draymond had offensive upside as well um clay for the most part he scored 20 or more points just five times this year during his 16 game return now he's hit three or more threes 11 times but it's clear clay i mean it's clear clem he's not Clay, he's not what he used to be. And it's going to take time. We understand, not but not yet. But I don't, I think not yet will be next year, which means that right, Max right. is out or Golden State can be this season. And so when I look at Memphis, who's under them, and Phoenix, who's above them, they're just so, they're just as deep as Golden State, but they're more explosive offensively. And for the Warriors, it feels like when Curry's not efficient, they fold because Clay isn't there yet to make up the difference. Andrew Wiggins has had a solid year, but he's Harrison Barnes 2.0. All-star. Okay, all-star, yeah. <laughs> he's Harrison Barnes 2.0. So some games will give you 25, but other games will give you nine. And, you know, Wiggins is playing well. He's shooting 41% from three. He's shooting 52.4% from two. It's, it's having a career year, but he hasn't cracked 20-plus points at all during the last seven games. That's the Andrew Wiggins experience. He'll give you 25. Then he's, other nights he'll give you nine. He's averaging 18? He's averaging, uh, he's averaging about 18, but he's he's had a little inconsistent streak when it comes to reaching that 20-point benchmark. And then Jordan Poole is averaging 16.7 a game. He's streaky. When I look at this team, they got, a, they got a ton of guys who can defend. They got a ton of guys who are streaky shooters. And they really rely on Steph Curry to play at that efficient scoring level for them to get to the top. But the biggest thing that I've been telling you guys in the chat all year, this is an undersized team that they really need Wiseman to be there and it just doesn't look like he will be so you're relying on Draymond Green and Kevon Looney to hold up against DeAndre Ayton Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson and you just talked about how Denver's getting healthy against Jokic they're not good matchups against any teams with size and so this is why I feel like from a seeding perspective they'll fall to three 
And if they fall to three, that would mean they'll have to play Denver. And that's not a good matchup for them in the first round. So I think Golden State is kind of maxed out. I think the hype that everybody had is starting to fade into reality. Coming into the year, I had them as the third best team in the West. And I think that's probably where they're going to be, although Memphis has risen. And I think what it really comes down to moving forward for them is they're really going to have to rely on their young guys, Kuminga, Moody, and Poole, to be consistent offensively to provide a level of explosion because relying on the Splash Bros isn't going to be favorable enough because Curry's been inefficient all year and Clay just isn't there yet. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that it won't get them far in the playoffs, but I think it'll be enough because they have enough of a lead to where if Draymond comes back, I think they can hold it down. Um, is it possible for us to pause really quick so I can go down and grab my girlfriend? Had to go get the missus. Can you hear me? I think you're, you're muted. I'm muted. Got you. Yeah, with the Warriors, I just think they're maxed out. Um, I think they're limited to not as dynamic offensively. They really depend on their defense and their shooting to uh, – gain the up on teams and I just feel like the competition below in Memphis is more dynamic the competition above is more dynamic and that's why I think Memphis will surpass them and get that two seed we'll see we shall see we'll see indeed we'll see indeed uh up next I want to talk about the Lakers uh well before we get to the Lakers I had to talk about things out east um, the one seed is the tie between Miami, the Sean squad, Chicago, Darius squad, and then everybody else has like a two and a half game difference <laughs> between Philly, Milwaukee, and Cleveland. So my question to you, Clem, is who do you see being the number one seed out east when playoff time comes? Yeah, as we talked about earlier, I think depth is, you know, it's it's very necessary during the regular season because it's 82 games. Players get tired. Veteran players are, you know, somewhat uninterested at times. Um, <clears throat> so I think for that reason, Miami is going to be uh, finish out the number one seed. I mean, they they have three tiers of um, of like different types of calibers of players. You have your Jimmy, your Bam, and your uh, Cal Lowry, who all star level players who are veterans who. Uh, maybe Bam's not a veteran yet, but um, has veteran-level-ish experience. Um, they're solidified. They, you know, know their role. They, they're they going to come in and play. But um, Lowry is a bit older, so um, he's bound to miss games here and there. And then Jimmy, I wouldn't say he's injury-prone, but he misses a handful of games every year as well. So... Um, it's good when you have like that veteran leadership at the top and then they have like a second tier of guys like the Tyler Heroes, the Robinsons, and even the P.J. Tucker who can, you know, who pretty much play every game and can fill the void of a Jimmy, a Bam, or a Lowry if needed. Um, and then even, you know, in that Miami Heat system, they develop great guys. Uh, so you have, you know, Gabe Vincent, Max Strews, uh, Van. And Caleb Martin, even Dwayne Dedman, all of them have stepped in and played 
good roles and, you know, good wins that they've had over the course of the year. So I think Miami's going to pull it out because they have the depth and they have the veteran savvy and leadership that's going to, you know, close the game for them down the stretch. And I think they understand that their best chance to win the East is to get a high seed. Yeah, I agree with Miami. Uh, I think for all of these teams, it really starts with how they handle the first five games out of the break. In Miami, they play the Knicks, Spurs, Bulls, Bucks, Nets. Now, the Knicks and the Spurs, they're tough outs, but they're not elite competition, so I see Miami beating those. The Bulls will be an intriguing one at home in Miami, and then we'll see what the Bucks and the Nets are on the back half. But Miami has really played throughout the year with a desire to get the one seed. They've been productive with Jimmy Butler and Bam. They've been productive without Bam to a degree. They've been productive with Kyle Lowry in and out the lineup, and they've leaned on their second unit players, all who I wish have had hands in this team being tied for first out in the East. With Chicago, I just feel like the injury bug has hit them so much. I heard Zach Levine will be able to play after the All-Star break. He still wants to be a part of the All-Star festivities, so he'll play in the game. I don't really understand any of this, but I think what's hurting the Bulls is I've seen the Bulls against elite competition. They're a lot different against those guys than when they beat up against Indiana, New York, San Antonio. So that's my fear there. And then with Milwaukee, I think Milwaukee has kind of realized that they have the team that obviously they're champs. They feel like they have the core to where I don't think it matters whether they're seated. I think they they think Giannis is that guy. Um, they feel like Drew and Chris have enough skins on the water where when they make the playoffs, it's about not who they match up with, but what will it take to get back to the finals? So I don't think they'll be going as hard for the top seed like a Miami or a, you know, a Miami or a Chicago. Now, Cleveland has house money because their five games out of the break are kind of cupcakes. You got the Wizards, the Wolves, and the Hornets all at home. They actually start off with Denver on the road after the All-Star break. So if Cleveland piles up wins against teams that they're supposed to beat, they could be right there in the top two seed picture before the season ends. But I'm kind of going to agree with you. I think Miami, they have the core. They've been battle-tested. And the way they play basketball fits regular season play. They're a grinded-out team who will get up for any game, whether it's a primetime game on Thursday night or a Sunday night early game in, you know, the West Coast. You know, playing the Clippers is like we're ready. So, And I think Spolstra is kind of drilled within his team. Look, we need the top seed to get a favorable matchup to come out of this conference. I don't think they can get away with playing Milwaukee again in the first round. Philly in the mm-hmm. first round. They need to play a team like Charlotte to kind of get them a quick four easy dubs where they can rust and gear up against the elite competition down the line. And I think they align with that to get the one seed. I agree. Now to wrap this podcast up, uh, we got the whole Lakers situation. They've been a disappointment this year. They're 27 and 31. They're ninth in the West. I, that's Clem's squad. He, even Him and Ace been struggling throughout the year. Um, who who would have thought the Clippers with no Kawhi, barely with Paul George, would have a better record than the Lakers? So they, they kept the team intact, but then AD got hurt. He's going to be out for four weeks. Now the question is really this, Glenn. Can this team make the playoffs? I mean, can, can they make it there? Because they've got a brutal schedule coming out of the break where you're playing the Clippers twice, you're playing Dallas, you're playing New Orleans, all teams that – 
the Lakers have shown they could lose to this year. Is this a play-in caliber team, or should it, or you see the Lakers not even being in the conversation when it comes playoff time in April? Yeah, um, I think they're a play-in team. Um, I just think, you know, when you have a superstar at the level of LeBron James, he's going to get you into the playoffs. Like, that he, he has the will to do that. Now, does he have the will to win a seven-game series against – the um, the Suns or the Warriors? I don't think so, but I think he he can will them to get out of the get into the play in and then get out of the play in, especially with um, Portland and you know I I really wanted the Pelicans to have Zion back and to make this last push. And it's like Dejounte Murray made his first All Star game, so like the Spurs are like you know, and Pop is like kind of in his last year, but kind of not. Um, and then the Trailblazers, Anthony Simons is, you know, making his emergence. And Dame said he wants to be loyal, but I don't know. I just think that the 10th seed is, like, really open for the taking. I think you're Kings. I t- honestly, I, I think the Kings would be the best team to get into the 10th seed. Like, I think they would, they would give the Lakers the best competition. Um, but I, I, I think they're going to get in. I think they'll get in through, you know, LeBron's sheer will. And I think Anthony Davis is going to come back at some point um, before the playoffs, and he'll help them get into the play-in too. But to, to answer your, your direct question from the, the pre-show meeting or agenda, if you will, uh, where do the Lakers go from here? Man, I say this. You got to see it through, my boy. Okay, and I asked director at LeBron because here's here's a list of the people they've lost over the last three years they've been there. All right, you got Ingram, Lonzo, Dwight Howard who came back, Rondo who came back, KCP, Kyle Kuzma, JaVale McGee, Danny Green, Alex Caruso, Avery Bradley who ended up coming back, Markeith Morris, Dion Waiters, J.R. Smith, Drummond, Gasol. Um, Matthews and Schroeder. Okay. So think about that's that's a full NBA roster they lost. All right. And then you bring in Russ, you bring in Melo, you bring in Monk, you bring in Nunn, you bring in Ariza, Basemar, Reeves, Ellington, uh, DeAndre Jordan, and then now Stanley Johnson. Like that is a lot of overturn. Like you have to get games together to build the chemistry and camaraderie you need for the playoffs. And you know, that's kind of the LeBron effect is like there's going to be a lot of internal mobility going on. Like people are going to get traded. People are going to move to his liking. But at some point you have to say, hey, this is our team. And, you know, I'm a Kobe guy. So, like, I, I believe it firmly. Like, you know, if you're a star in this league, like a top five player, which I think LeBron is, um, you got to be able to make who you got work, especially when you have another all-star on your team, even though Anthony Davis is a bit unreliable with his health, but he's still like a top 20 player, you know, even on his worst days. So that's good enough to get you into the playoffs, let alone the play-in. But they just need to stop looking for the easy way out. Like every time something gets tough, they're like, okay, well, yeah, let's, Let's go get this person. Let's get rid of this. Let's change it. No, like he wanted Russ. You moved all these pieces around. 
you know, you've there's been 20 something players in and out of this this team in the last four years. This is your team. Right. Get it done. You got to find a way to get it done. And I, and I I think he will. I think he will. I think they'll get in in the seventh or eighth seed um, and then, you know, win their first game similar to last year. I think it's going to be the same thing. Win their first game and they'll get to the first round and then they'll lose. Yeah, they'll make the playoffs. Um, we, and the play-in is an extension of the postseason. So, in a way, they'll make it. But it, it's I think not – it is it, not according okay, to the okay. history it's, it's, books. <laughs> it's an extension of the the postseason, but it's not the playoffs. I feel you, but the record books have said it's technically it the playoffs. I go off so, of, they so, they went so you they went ahead. out put put it this way. They went after the same format that March Madness adopted for their stuff to really create more basketball, more revenue, more money. So on March Madness, when you have the first four, you're still considered an NCAA tournament appearance team. So you got the big. Let me let me ask you because I don't think it's the same. I don't think okay. it's the same because okay. So the Sacramento Kings have the longest drought in the NBA as far as teams that have not made the playoffs. Right. If they make the play in, does that count? Does that break their drought? It, it would. Yeah. No, it would. It's, it's an extension. Look. Look, Clem, I feel you. Clem, I feel you because we're coming we're coming from the archaic standpoint of a best teams in both conferences. That's the playoffs. But they added the play-in to eliminate the allure of tanking. So if the Kings hypothetically were to make the play-in, which I don't think they will, they would end their playoff drop. That's that's just how the rules of the that's, NBA have aligned. That's that's not that's not the rules, but I don't think it is. We we can agree to disagree on that. We're, we're going. I, I'm pretty sure if they make it next year, they're gonna people will not people, but it will be it will be a factual statement to say they have the longest playoff drought because the play in is to get into the playoff. That's why I play in and a play off. Like the the difference is the in and the off. You know, right? What I'm but, so, but I'm really basing it like in March Madness. Like you gotta get past the first four to get into the bracket. But if you lose, you still technically were a part of the NCAA March Madness experience. So. I'm looking at it from that aspect. Now, I think what's going to happen to the Lakers is they'll get in the play-in, but I don't think they'll make it out alive. Um, Minnesota, when healthy, is better than them. The Los Angeles Clippers, who, according to sources, they expect Paul George to be back sometime in mid-March. With Paul George on the floor with that cast, they're better than them. Um, And so now you're hoping for I maybe beat Portland, hypothetically. Um, Portland's kind of gained some steam recently, so – I don't think they'll fall off too much to where they're in the same realm of a Sacramento and Oklahoma City and New Orleans. So they'll make the cut. I think what LeBron is going to regret, and I'm going to always say this to Deshaun to troll him, but it's facts, though. <laughs> he decided to have Russell Westbrook be a part of his squad. That was the dumbest thing he could have ever did. Yeah. We all that were aware of Russell Westbrook's history and track record knew that stuff wasn't going to work. Not to be fair. We didn't think it wouldn't work to this proportion, but we all knew as long as Westbrook was on that squad, they weren't going to come out the West. And the way Westbrook played the last few seasons, they weren't this super team that everybody was lauding them to be. And the bottom line is LeBron, I know you think he's still top five. He's not. And so what he should have did was prioritize surrounding a team competent around not just his skill set, but everybody else's to where he wouldn't have 
to run himself through the ground at his age and play at a top five level. He can pace himself more. And they should have took his facts. Last deadline of last year, you trade for Kyle Lowry. They did. Yeah. That shocked everybody. You trade yeah. for Lowry. And then in the offseason, you go for Buddy Heald. So now you have Kyle Lowry and Buddy Heald in your backcourt to go with Braun, AD, and I guess Dwight, if you want to play Dwight. That, that looks a lot more tantalizing than Westbrook and Wayne Ellington or Westbrook and Austin Reeves. And I know a lot of people are like, well, they could have had DeRozan. Honestly, if they had DeRozan on this squad, I don't think they'd be that much better because DeRozan needs the ball to be effective. And I think on this squad, he would have the ball less and he's not a spacer. So the best fit for them was Lowry and Heald. They bypassed that to get Westbrook. And I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm kind of agreeing with Skip Bayless's sentiment. I think he wanted Westbrook to prove to the world I could do what KD couldn't. But the problem is you just don't know how bad it is to hoot with Russ until you hoot with Russ. We see it on TV. Like, we understand, like, nah. And so, and I think what fans misconstrue is they look at us critiquing Westbrook's inability to play constructive team ball as teammates don't like him. He's a malcontent. He's not a good guy. Like, I'm pretty sure he's a great teammate. I'm pretty sure he's um, a hardworking individual, all of that. He's just not a good fit for a squad that's designed to make a push for the championship because as you're as him representing your team as the lead guard, he's too inefficient, he's too sporadic, he's too emotional, and now at his age, he don't play defense, and he's lost the athleticism, he's lost the ability to be effective at, in the mid-range, and he's not even productive at the line. So he's yeah. basically a shorter Ben Simmons minus the athleticism. And so now there's an expectation maybe he may come off the bench in the second half of the season. It's just unfortunate because LeBron wasted one of his better years of his career behind choosing Westbrook over Lowry and Buddy Hill. And this squad hasn't panned up to the expectations. I think when it's all said and done, this is probably going to be the most underperforming Lakers squad in the franchise history. I think it's even worse than Nash and Howard and Gasol and Cole because at least they made it to the playoffs as a seven seed, mainly because Kobe, you know, carried the squad before he got hurt. They made it to the playoffs. I don't think these guys are going to make it to the legitimate playoffs because Minnesota, out of the playing teams, Minnesota is better than everybody in the play-in. Let's just be real. Um, the Clippers with Paul George is better than everybody else in the play-in. So where does that leave the Lakers? Especially with AD in and out with injuries. So that's my take there. Yeah, in a, in a one-game scenario, um, like you brought up the, the reference with Kobe leading – um, the 2013 Lakers. And I think it'll be a similar thing. Like Dwight wasn't playing like Dwight. And, you know, to their detriment, Kobe broke down his body getting them there. Um, and I I mean, I don't want to say LeBron's going to break down his body, but he hasn't been the healthiest all year either. So I can see a similar thing happening where it's like LeBron uses all of his resources to, you know, get to the uh to the playoffs but then they're gonna get smacked in the first round by the warriors or the suns and it's gonna be sad <laughs> sad and a colossal failure and honestly that's all on lebron so i don't want to hear when the season's over it's like man lebron just that's, didn't have that's, enough I, just, I don't think i don't think he's good because i could just see like lebron's way too prideful to he doesn't want to be known as like because no, like, real star – I mean, I guess Curry did. Curry them lost, but, like, they were missing Klay Thompson. So, like, if if Anthony Davis is there and LeBron's there and Russ is there, 
and they lose in the play-in. Like they don't, they lose to like a Timberwolves and like a Clippers or whoever else. Like that's gonna be a. I mean, I guess it's not a big stain, but it's like one of those embarrassing stains on LeBron's record. Like, like yeah, he had a great year, but you know they lost in the play-in with him at the helm. You know, so we'll see. It's gonna be interesting, definitely. I, I love the fact that. You know, basketball is the focus focal point of the sports world right now. Yeah, basketball is front and center. It's back, and I think everybody's going to be invested the back half of the regular season. Um, with that, it's the end of episode forty-four, of Independent Intel. I'm your regular host, Kibu Bamani. It's always great to have my brother Clement Gibson, Clement Gibson, rather, on set Sir. to do these segments in NBA basketball. Um, this episode will more than likely be uploaded tomorrow. Um, I'm finna, you know, me and Clem, obviously we're going to hop off and check the rising stars game. I mean, that's, that's probably going to be pretty good. It's a new, yeah. new little wrinkle that they yeah, I mean, I'm geeked for that. Yeah, for sure. New right now, wrinkles. who, who, who's the best player in the rising all-star game? Uh, best player in the rising all-star game right now. I would have to say, uh, so let me, let me rephrase it. If you were starting a day, a, a team today, I know you hate these questions. <laughs> if you're starting a team today with everybody in the, in the, in the pool. So basically, in the draft in the last two years, who are yeah. you picking? I'd have to go with I'd have to go with Mobley personally. Oh, um, bro, we yeah. agreeing too much. Too today, much, bro. bro. Yeah, we. we go, I'm yeah. gonna go back to the chat and be like, "Look, bro, me and Cam agreed on everything today. Like, you're not gonna believe it." Because I, I really thought I was trying to bait you to say Lamelo or Anthony Edwards, but okay, all right. Well, nah, I'm 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 gonna go with Mobley, man. I've been high on Mobley yeah. for a minute, and he's panning out. So I think Mobley for sure. I think second place will probably be a tie between K, Melo, Anthony Edwards. I I personally feel with Ant, man, he's he's talented but he hasn't tapped he hasn't touched the surface because what he does well is great crossover downhill driver a ferocious finisher at the rim but he hasn't i haven't seen a consistent post game haven't seen a consistent mid-range once he adds that and becomes a better playmaker he can be one of the toughest covers in the league and i think with mellow i think i think with mellow he just I, i think the coaching staff and it may start up top with mj they just need to put the keys Give him the keys and just let him run the car. I know him and Rozier go back and forth with trading ball handling duties, but he needs to be the focal point of the team, and they can go there. And really, with Cade, just needs a better squad around him. And I think he could be where he's there. But right now, Mobley by far is a guy I want to build around for sure. For sure. Hey, whenever whenever guys are being compared to Tim Duncan, you gotta you gotta put him first. <laughs> you got you gotta put him first, indeed. Um, so hey, this episode will be out tomorrow. Stay tuned. Um, I'm going to holler at y'all next week. God bless. Peace. Appreciate you, Cam.